Hey, this is Henry. I have with me Sean. Tumbling. You just mentioned this to me. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah. Okay. So hi, and thanks for having me on. This is an idea that's kind of spreading a little bit. I, I heard it first from Joel Hooks and Chris Biscardi from the Egghead Crowd. And they heard it from Alex Hillman, who runs in the Amy Hoy circle of sell products online and stuff. So if you're in that world, you know who these people are. If you're not, you have no idea. But anyway, I think this feeling is very common among people like us. So communities are important. We, we all get that. You can appoint a community manager to help to grow the community or coordinate events and stuff like that. But it's a very like draining job. <laughs> I've done it, right? Uh, you've done it. And every time you like try to put together something uh, for the community, they might participate, but then they don't seem to really uh, carry on that momentum. It's up to you again and again and again to get things going. So Alex Hillman, who wrote this blog post, was trying to popularize this idea of an alternative, which is tumbling. He also made the analogy of if you're a community manager, you're like a cruise director and a single point of failure. Everything relies on you to, to get going. Everything relies on you to start and to organize schedules and stuff like that. Whereas his idea of a tumbler is a person who makes things happen, in particular, uh, a pro professional entertainer or comedian whose function is to encourage an audience, guests at a resort, to participate in the entertainment activities. So you kickstart things, but then it's like a sustainable nuclear reaction between the participants in the community, which is like, yeah. that's nice, right? Like, <laughs> I don't have to do everything. Um, I haven't seen this online that much. So it really takes some talent in terms of community management to, to kickstart the many-to-many conversation instead of many-to-one conversation with a community manager in the center of everything so this idea of tumbling I, I think it's an interesting word that's why it catches attention it doesn't really tell you how to do it <laughs> it's been a good idea i think it's a good goal though for example one actionable step is to remove yourself from being a blocker on on things right let people self-organize give them the power and trust them with the responsibility i think you've had this with other people that you chatted with give responsibility early right and, and you see them start to take charge and grow into their roles one of the other things that I think I was watching a Nadia talk, Nadia Iqbal, and she like started this chain of thought in me. I'm sorry, I can't remember which talk it was. But basically, you know how we have these roles like maintainer of an open source repo? That's so broad. And that used to be the only role. And now we have like write, maintain, admin, whatever. But then we also have triage and some smaller roles that only triage and, and do other sort of community managey stuff. So I think it's interesting, what if every project had a maintainers.md, and then we separated the role of a maintainer into these separate roles, and then people could sign up for that. And it'd be well expected what each role would do, and it'd be like a limited term. And then once that term is over, then we kind of just vote in a new, well, it's, it's probably not voting, it's just like whoever wants to do it. But it's like a rotating thing. It's not the same person, and they're not taking it on for the rest of their lives. Uh, it's kind of a little bit like how, I guess, golf clubs and social clubs run. They, they have limited terms, and that's great. Even the president of the, the, the club, right, gets to cycle over, and then you can see the past presidents, and that's a nice thing to have done, but you don't commit to it for the rest of your life. So I've been calling this idea of separation of maintainer concerns, but then also like it has this like term limits. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I like that. It sort of deals with a lot of different issues at once. One that you just pointed out now is this idea that you have to maintain something forever. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the assumption is that you need to do that. So people that are trying to get involved, they're like, oh, if I start, I'm going to have to do this forever. And they don't want to commit to that, right? Well, well sometimes I might not get involved because I'm just going to assume you're, you're in charge forever. So I'm just going to find something else to do. 
Uh, that's true too. I, there's this pattern of whenever new projects come out, all these people just show up out of nowhere that were capable of contributing before. But because it's new, it seems like it needs a lot of help. But all the old projects just need as much help as before too. It doesn't seem as like cool or fun. Like you said, everything's under control, even though on the inside, it feels like everything's on fire sort of thing, right? Yeah. It could be like a thing that we formalize. You know how Y Combinator companies, they have like a batch? Like I went through Y Combinator winter 18. So for the rest of my life, I just say like YCW18 or Recurse Center, you know, like RCW18, whatever. What if we had like Babel W18? I served as X of Babel for that term. And then I moved on. And someone else did that after me. And that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. I like what you said about differentiation rules. Maintainer is too broad. And because it's so vague, people have their own assumptions on what that means. It limits what people can get involved with. I think when people are getting into programming, they don't know what's possible. So I think that causes them to not want to get started. We need to give them the concrete things, not just writing code, but all these other things. And maybe giving those a name is, is a good thing, right? I mean, triager, reproer. I, <laughs> I haven't thought this out. This is like a blog post that's been sitting on my mind for like a year. And <laughs> I haven't done anything. I know you probably don't consider yourself a maintainer, but if you're the one managing the subreddit or you're the one that's making videos about some project, those are all parts of maintaining the community, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a name for what I do, but... You know, I think it's important. I think that code only goes so far. And I think that communities around code matters. And I think that people who, who can sort of manage between both actually do very well. You know, it, there's an amount of self-interest in this. I'm not doing this like for the community. Because I've been so involved, I know everything that's going on in React. I, if anything that I want done, I don't have to be an expert in everything. I know the experts on everything, right? So I can just call on them. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's its own like skill or just part, yeah knowledge that it's important. Yeah. Okay. So we we can talk about the subreddit thing. So for those who, those who don't know, I I am one of the moderators uh, of the R slash ReactJS subreddit. I joined when we were maybe thirty forty thousand people, and now it's uh, coming up to two hundred thousand. And that's not me, right? That's that's just like the growth of React's popularity. I actually charted it once, um, and it's around about seventy percent a year growth every year across GitHub, NPM, and React, and Reddit, and what have you. So it's just an organic growth from people learning React. Feels like React has taken over, but actually there's tons of people who are still learning, right? And still getting started. So I was an active moderator for two years-ish. I've been on Reddit for like two years before that. And then I only got the job because there was some like framework war that was brewing. And then Dan uh, Abramov was telling me there, there's some like nasty comments about Vue or whatever in, in the React community. And, and he was like, why don't you shut it down? And I was like, Dan, I don't have, I'm not a mod. I don't have the ability. And then he's like, now you are. And <laughs> I thought it was a great opportunity and I enjoyed it. I, I'm on Reddit anyway. So that brought me into to Reddit even more. The, the challenge has been sort of trying to get active participation, trying to balance beginners and, and, and advanced people because they, they, we all share the same board. It's, it's just one message board that's just voted. So sometimes... There are a lot more beginners in there, so you just get a lot of beginner stuff voted up. But then the really awesome stuff, like there are very advanced people there who have really good com comments and conversations, and we need to encourage them and make them stick around. So it's this weird balance of like, are we beginner Reddit today, or are we like, let's get deep in the details Reddit, you know? And, and moderators have very limited control because the mob just votes whatever they want. The only thing that you do, you know, you can prompt 
activity, right? You can post discussion topics. You can post like surveys. You can post job boards, like who's hiring, right? That's very popular. So stuff like that. But ultimately, the conversation comes from the community, and then your main job is to like shut off toxic elements. So that's what Reddit is basically for me. I also started like a beginner Q and A. Basically, it serves as a sink for all the Q and A questions that otherwise would be posted elsewhere, and then it would make the the whole thing very very beginner. But then also, it was a very good learning exercise for me because I would just. Promise to answer every question, and that just gets you very good at answering questions. And then, if you answer enough questions, you can see that you're repeating yourself. You make it a blog post, and then you can just like copy and paste, right? Actually, if anyone you know is is looking to get started in React or just any technology, just go answer questions enough, and then the best questions become your blog posts, and then you build your reputation that way. It's not that mysterious, right? That makes sense. I know Logan who was a core dog maintainer. Uh, basically the same thing, except with Slack. We had our just real-time chat, and then he just answered people's questions. Answered every question, right? Yeah. And I did the same thing when I got started. And it's not like we knew the answer. You just look it up, and you have to figure it out yourself. So I'm a maintainer. I don't know them either. I have to look them up, and you figure it out. Yeah. Let's say it probably take like a year to know everything that people usually ask. But I'm, I'm also very obsessed with history. I, I definitely go back in time more than pe- most people that I know. Because I want to know origins of things and I want to know how things started and all that. I think people should do that as well because sometimes it makes it easier, actually. If you look at a project from the beginning, then you're like, oh, okay, this is the central idea. And then it just like accumulated a bunch of craft along the way. <laughs> but it, it's fine. That's, that's, how, that's how these things grow. But it also reminds you, you, you know, this like memento mori thing, like all things die, all, all things must pass. People don't know that Git is only 15 years old. There was a time before Git. And... <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> VS Code is five years old, you know, and there was a time before VS Code, which also means that five and 15 years from now, we would be doing completely different things. That the presence of like, this is a special moment, but like not everything is fixed. Things can improve, but also like things that seem like a sure thing right now may not be. And I think I don't know what to do with that. You know, that's just like sobering and it helps you be grounded in like everything that you do. Yeah, I think this aspect of caring about history, and that's related to all the stuff I've been trying to talk about in the podcast, like people that care about archival and preservation, even the thing we talked about with Jordan, he's trying to preserve the aesthetic of Windows 98, or people trying to preserve the artwork in museums, right? How do we do that in code? Are we even doing that, right? Like what you said, there's not a lot of history. I know Maggie was saying (laughs) she wanted to kind of do a podcast about JavaScript history. And I know there's the book, 20 Years of JavaScript, but no one really cares about that stuff. We <laughs> kind of move on to the next thing. I mean, forget like what we've learned, if we even learned it, right? So JavaScript has a good... Brendan Ike is still super active and he answers basically every question about JavaScript, which is amazing. You can ask the creator. So so it's, it's still fine. JavaScript has a lot of like institutional memory, especially everyone in TC39, they like know things that happened before and they're like we, we, we're not going to repeat that again so that's good uh, i i don't have a problem with that well i think that's with javascript the language but maybe not like frameworks and libraries those kinds of things tooling i do wish that every doc every project had like you know how this was made i was thinking recently about how little code gets documented like we don't really know yeah what, what tobias yeah. coppers was thinking when he made webpack we have some reconstructions based on like podcast interviews and stuff like that. <laughs> I like, know. Like, nobody ever like stopped and like wrote it down. It just like it just like became a thing. 
And <laughs> right. And even even now, like I want to write down a lot of stuff, but then I don't want to put it on the docs because I don't want it to be like official. It's just like this is what we're dealing with. Yeah, but you, you can tell the story in, in in podcasts and stuff, and let people pick it up. Right. You know? Right. Okay, you know, even for Babel, the primary dog for Babel's origins is Sebastian's like 2016 year in review. It was just like that. That's it. Like, <laughs> this is one of the most, you know, important. I, I want to know the journey. I want to know the pain. I want to know like the things that you tried and it didn't work, and why it didn't work. Because like someone else is going to try it, <laughs> and uh, no one writes it down. So it's it's sad, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, there's so many of these things. Like even us switching from. GitHub to Fabricator, that was the whole thing. You know, like there's all these little, not incidents, but just events that happen that we learn something, but we don't talk about it. What you said, other people are probably doing the same mistakes. Yeah. I mean, look, I, everyone's busy. I don't blame them, but I just wish there were, there were more. And I, I feel like if we instill a culture of document yourself more, it helps historians like me, but then also it helps people get contributing because they know the philosophy and all that. Like right now, even like, Sebastian's making this almost the same mistake with Rome. Like everything's in his head. <laughs> it's hard. And I think what you're saying about culture is like we're so focused on making the new release or making it, you know, faster and less code size, which is all good. But at the same time, that same person that's doing all that, they're not spending the time to like you said, write down their thinking. Because it's hard to write down your thinking and you kind of just want to make it work. And and there's only one person, maybe it's similar to the whole community manager thing, that it's also a blocker on all these different things. And not that they don't care about these things, I'm sure they want to do it, but just you feel overwhelmed because out of all the possible things to think about, what's on your mind? And I don't know like what's what to prioritize all the time. I don't know. I tend to think that the solution is pretty simple. Just like write more. Just, just be okay with like, this is what I think now. I might change my mind. I don't know. But here it is. We're always on Twitter so much. Like it's a form of sharing what I think, but like not really super committing into it that much. That's fine. Yeah, I think maybe we could talk about that. But similar to code, you don't want to commit it. It's like, why do I feel like I can't put it down on paper, sort of thing. So that's, I guess, that's why I blog. I don't know. It, it helps you get into DevRel. <laughs> that's the other part of my life. I've kind of gotten into, and then obviously that also got me into teaching, uh, mainly for Egghead, but I've done some other uh, workshops. I mean, that's pretty good. I I highly recommend people do that. It's kind of weird. So I call, I call these learning gears. There's the explorer gear when you don't know what you don't know. And you're just going around and exploring and then taking notes for yourself. And then there's the connector gear where you're like teaching what you know. And then the final gear, it's either miner or builder. I think I've settled on miner. It's like when you struck gold, you should dig here. And then you just go. And that's where it's like, okay, no one else is doing this. I got to do this. I'm abnormally good at it. I'm abnormally obsessed by it. I should just go all in and do that as like a form of R&D. When you're like a PhD student, you're like trying to push the boundaries of human knowledge, right? You know, I, ideally. <laughs> I'm sort of like between explorer and connector. I look for stuff that I don't know. I learn that and then I teach it. But it's not special. Like everyone can do it. But like some people really focus in, like Evan Yu, right? He found a thing and it was like, it's view. And he was like, I'm just going to go all in on it. Uh, and then the people like reward him by helping him, right? I think when you have something that you really want out of the world, it's almost like the universe that conspires to help you. <laughs> if you have like a general, I uh, wish things were just generally better. Like that's not something that people can rally behind. But if you have a very specific vision, then that's something that people can get around. That's the kind of thing that I see in Rich Harris. And, and it can get people to, to come along with that vision with the docs and the speaking that they do. 
it just seems like pretty inspiring and and I'm I'm looking for that. I haven't found that yet. <laughs> I always feel like, you know, because I'm known for non-technical things. I'm known for like, okay, I manage the React community, whatever. I speak a lot, whatever. But it's not really super technical. It's just like how to like be super noisy as a dev. So I'm looking for my thing and I still haven't found it yet. But I've, I found a bunch of small little things along the way. <laughs> and you want that specifically to be technical? I mean, it would be nice just because like you don't feel like a real dev if it's not technical. Mm. But like the world seems to want me to to do more non-technical stuff, especially like with this book that I'm doing, because that's definitely been the most successful thing I've ever written or said, which is kind of sad. But like, yeah, I, I think it's OK. I'm comfortable leaning into that. I, I also know that like I want to do more and I don't want to be only defined by the non-technical stuff. So that's kind of what I'm like. I want to adjust the other way now. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny. I kind of, it's sort of like the opposite for me. I've been doing all this technical and I'm trying to like not, not do technical stuff because it's all technical in the end. But, you know, how do I do sort of more on non-technical? To code. You need to know how to code, but then you're, you're like next to it. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Because I wouldn't be able to maintain that if I don't know anything about compilers. I need to know something about it, obviously. Just to think out loud there, to me, it's sort of like, is it even worth our time to spend all this time trying to make all these things faster when it really doesn't really change what our project is about? Maybe the education stuff is more important in the sense, not really for Babel, it's just like, how do we get more people to understand ASTs, compilers, tooling, no matter what the tool is, right? So I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in as well, which is kind of like anti-Babel, which is this idea of collapsing layers, right? We went through this phase of every tool does one th- one job well, but then we're, it turned out that there's like 10 different config files in my repo. I don't know what they do. And <laughs> they, they kind of don't work super well with each other. And and it's like, okay, are we due for like a consolidation where everything just gets done in one, one pass? Like we know what to do now. Mm-hmm. We've kind of like explored a, a bunch of things, that whole Unix philosophy thing. That's good because they're small, they're easily maintainable. You can swap them out um, for other tools if you need to. The downside of having small utilities that all just like kind of chain together is that if you need an advanced degree in, in modern JavaScript to know how to hook them up together, right? A, a typical like production repo would have like 10 different config files in, in the top level of the repo. The, the VS Code won't really work super well with Prettier, Babel, and, and the ESLint. And so to kind of bring it back to the, like, the community thing, JavaScript doesn't really have a community manager, the Tumblr. It just is this mess. <laughs> like maybe we should have one. Yeah, I think about that too. It's not really about your individual tool because in the end, no one's going to use it by itself. So you kind of do have to know about every other tool anyway, um, no matter what you maintain. Yeah. What would it look like to be a maintainer of multiple projects? But I guess the easy way out in a way is just make it all one project. So. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what Sebastian did. I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. It's it's a it's definitely above my pay grade. So <laughs> I, I think the, the things that I focus on at my scale are open source knowledge and that's that's probably the other thing that we can talk about, the, the cheat sheets that that I do. I guess it's just like why did you start doing a, is, why do we call them cheat sheets in particular? Are they just awesome lists or readmes or you know blogs? Yeah. Well, so, so first of all, I feel like a lot of awesome lists 
become not awesome over time. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, there's a process to add them, but there's no process to delete them, right? You, you're not going to come in like, okay, this repo is not awesome anymore. No, I think that's a super interesting point. It's almost like when we talk about like CSS, it's really hard to remove it, right? You don't want to like prevent someone from adding their awesome link. And then later you realize that it doesn't fit with this whole thing and you can't and it just gets bigger and bigger. It sounds like any code, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but the goal for this was actually more than just a repo of links, right? That's what awesome lists mainly are, and they're good for that, uh, kind of surfacing. So I kind of com- compare it to Yahoo versus Google, right? Old Yahoo used to have humans who just like manually indexed the, the, the entire internet, right? And then Google trained us that you have to type it into the search box, and then you find the top 10 blue links. But it, it turns out that it's actually pretty easy to beat Google at surfacing the super relevant links because you as a human know how to organize better to your domain. Google only has mm-hmm. the 10 blue links. So this is kind of like my way of like organizing information. But the other element I wanted to, to reflect was that it's personalized docs, right? So mm-hmm. every project tends to have one set of documentation and that's fine for a certain project size, but actually I have this whole theory of documentation levels. You can get to another level where it's big enough. It's just like weird use cases that the main docs will never cover. Just never, right? So the way that I got started with the TypeScript thing was I got my first dev job, right? I went through a boot camp. I graduated. I started my first day at the new job. And then my boss was like, do you know TypeScript? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. And then I spent like six months like struggling. And then I was just like, okay, I'm going back to my old code, to other files, to copy and paste, and then copy to a new file just to make it component um, i should probably like pull these out and then paste it in somewhere as a cheat sheet right so like it's not just links it's also like copy and pasteable examples of common things that you're going to use and the reason that react is never going to document typescript is because they use flow right and the reason that typescript is never going to document react is because they they serve typescript the typescript docs serve typescript users who are coming over from node.js and and, and just general js land they don't have anything react specific so I found a hole where it was just like an intersection of React doesn't do this, TypeScript doesn't do this, but there are a lot of me who are like mm-hmm. React and TypeScript people. And why not just create the docs for us? And and so like it started copy and pasting and then now a whole bunch of, it's like been translated into two other languages and it strikes a nerve because it's underserved. And I think people need to get over this idea of like one single doc for that domain and end of story. Like there can be different docs for different audiences and that should be totally fine. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it's similar to note-taking and your own knowledge bank and and the idea that some of it you don't even need to share, but it's good for you just to have. Yeah, I mean, I share by default. There's definitely a lot that I don't share. I I, I take a lot of notes in in OneNote and stuff like that. But on thematic stuff that I know other people will have interest in, I might as well share it because they actually help me out and and improve it and, and stuff like that. So I've been taught TypeScript by people at Microsoft and Uber and... Airbnb and other places because they PR stuff in and I have to learn from it, you know? So I, I kind of call it open source knowledge. And it's the whole, this, this whole idea of open source code is better than closed source code because there's, you know, more people looking at it. It's easy to contribute. You know, open source is clearly eaten software, right? But the way that we treat our, our knowledge is very closed source. Even this like recent digital garden movement, it's all closed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's sharing their knowledge. I mean, some, but they mostly want to share like the finished products. But for me, it's very easy to just put up a, a, a markdown file and just go like, hey, you're all devs. This is a markdown file. You know what to do with markdown files. Just, you know, move stuff around. Right? It's very like 
informal. I mean, I, I'm the curator, right? Under my name and all that. But people get value just because like they, they can contribute what they know, but then they benefit from the rest. It's exactly the same as the open source code project. That's really good for one thing. But I, I find it helpful to establish expertise over time. Like when I started out, I was a complete noob. And then people could see that I was a complete noob and then they could help me. And then over time, by the process of having answered a lot of questions, I became less of a noob. And people could see that because all I needed to do was just drop them this cheat sheet and go like, I made that. And and, and for me, that's proof of work. So I, I'm bringing this idea in from cryptocurrencies and blockchains mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The reason that the way that we interview is kind of like broken. You have to perform within a small interview window of, I don't know, a day. Right. And then like, hopefully you serialize your experiences down to a, a, to a certain format, like on a resume or in like a 30 minute uh, technical interview or like a conversation in, in a fit interview. And then they like deserialize it from like what you say. And they'll be like, OK, I, I can see this person performing in, in, my, in my team. And that's it. And, and that's fine. That's the normal way of doing things. But I have had people interview me and they Google me in front of me and they can just instantly see all the work that I've done and know that I'm legit. And it's like not fakeable. <laughs> <laughs> you know right. and i'm not bragging it just is you can verify instantly because it's open whereas everyone else if your work is closed you cannot verify so you have to do like reference checks you have to do technical tests and what have you and it just kind of sucks in general <laughs> i don't know yeah and it's happened over a long period of time so it's not like people that just literally just copy paste someone's repo and then remove their attribution or increase their contributor count. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of like what Twitter is, right? It's a permanent hallway track. My new job, do you know Nader Debit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You probably do. He knows everybody. He knew of me and I knew of him for two years before we started working to- together, right? Mm. Like at that point, there's just nothing to hide. I'm, I'm sure there's stuff that he didn't know about me and, and stuff like that. But like most of the time you've seen each other interact, how you behave. There's There's no like question of like, this is a total stranger and I'm inviting them into my team for like two years or four years, whatever. There's a lot less risk if everything's like open and it's instantly verifiable and you can see them work in public and it's just a really nice thing to have. So I don't know. There's a, <laughs> I have a lot of complicated thoughts about that and I try to write it down. Yeah, my job at Adobe, same thing. They found me through open source and I still had to do the interview, but I, I think maybe trusted that. Like you kind of coasted through, right? You're like, they have things apart from this interview to judge me on. So that's the TypeScript thing. I'm planning to turn that into like a course someday. I, I definitely got lucky with that one. Didn't really do much to promote it or anything. But it, the, I think that intersection, a pretty good formula for people if they're listening to and they want to do this is to find the intersection of two big communities. It's probably underserved because like each community has their own official set of docs. They won't acknowledge the existence of the other. Uh, go target the intersection. And uh, that's about it. Right. You can definitely take the initiative. They, they just have different priorities, right? They, they're, they're trying to maintain their thing and they, they don't have you at heart. That's, that's fine. <laughs> so like, I basically extended that approach to design. So I called it Spark Joy. Uh, and that's just like a collection of design tools. Uh, and that one got picked up by Adi Osmani. That one got attention because Adi just tweets really awesome stuff. So that's probably like one of the, the highlights of my like open source knowledge career. My, my designs suck, but... I think that there's a market for design for developers like me who know they suck at design, but they want simple tricks. And there are other people who do that, but there's nothing stopping me from collecting my own list of stuff, right? right. So that's what SparkJoy Spark is about. This one's not an intersection. This is just like my take on, on people like me on something that's super popular, which is design for devs, always sells out, whatever. 
any anytime some designer goes like, hey, what if I did a course on design for devs? Devs just eat it up, right? They learn, and they never use any of the things that they learn. So this one is like biased towards, for me, I know some things about front end, but I don't know design. So here's my list of things that I use all the time. Those are all things that you like personally really want to learn about. So it's not like they just, you know, came out of nowhere. It's just, yeah. You know, you- I'd, say, I'd say I was less serious about that because like design was never like a big part of my job, but I'll probably try to make it more. I don't know. And then this CLI cheat sheet. I was asked to make a CLI. I was maintaining the Netlify CLI because some guy left, then I took it on. And then I didn't want to change my job to be a CLI engineer. So I, I asked for other people to be hired to, to take over that job so that I could keep mm. my existing job. It's an important thing to like look ahead to like what you're painting yourself in, into in your current job. And if you don't like that, then you have to pivot before you have no choice. It's just like unfortunate that people are pigeonholed into undesirable things within a company. And then um, once you're in there, you kind of have no way to leave. And <laughs> it's just kind of nasty. But anyway, like everything is a CLI. And I think people don't understand that even Babel is a CLI. We all use the same set of tools and no one ever documented them. So that was CLI cheat sheet. It's not yeah. as popular as the other one, but no JavaScript course will tell you that Ch- Chokidar is what you use for file watching. But everyone uses <laughs> Chokidar. <laughs> and it's like, where, where are the edge cases and you have to use something else? There's all these like small little cross-platform nuances that like nobody writes down, but I, I just wrote it down for myself, you know? Um, mm, yeah. There's a lot of assumptions that people have that if you're in it, you know it, but you, no one writes it down. Like, like Sindri, Sindri knows all this stuff. Like, right, like the, the, the kind of stuff that he does, he knows all this like CLI no utils goodness, right? Because he made most of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he doesn't write it down. He just like open sources yet another library. And then people have to go use his library or they use a competitor library. But then it, we just like don't know why we use it. So it might be a good idea to write it down. I don't know. Mm. The last thing that I have listed here is concurrent React Notes. So I'm sure you know this like whole hoo-ha about concurrent React. It used to be async React covering React suspense and time slicing. Now it's just suspense. It used to be a super exciting thing in React. Now it's just super boring. But I took it on myself to like be the central repo of knowledge for everything new in React. And I called it like fresh async React at the time. So the fresh repo idea was like a twist on Sindre's awesome repo. So, so Sindre's awesome repo just like lists things that are awesome and maybe less awesome over time, right? Uh, whereas fresh is like for things that are new and constantly evolving. So actually chronological order is more important than alphabetical or categorical mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. Chronological means like, okay, things that are three months ago, no longer relevant. So let's just delete all this stuff. So let's just like keep it fresh. So that was essentially what I was doing there. And then it became concurrent React and it became not so fresh anymore. And so I just turned it into notes. And these were the unofficial documentation for concurrent React. And then they actually released the beta. So then I archived it. And it's good to have projects that end. It's good to give closure to yourself, but then also to people who might see it in future and go like, is this still maintained? Like, I guess that's like history as well. That's history. It's still there. It's still useful to see like how people are thinking. Yeah. So cheat sheets are, are like one way where it's like collaborative. I have an open source license. Anyone can, can fork and, and contribute and whatever. And then I also do a lot of real life community work because like cheat sheets are kind of ad hoc on, on GitHub. But the real life thing started with this felt society stuff. So the, this one was because like you, me, Rich Harris and a bunch of other people are all in New York and mm-hmm. like we don't meet up enough. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's going to be the world's first Svelte meetup in London. 
And I was like, we have Rich Harris in New York. We should have a New York meetup. So I realized this with one week to go to the London meetup. And I was like, we have to beat the London meetup. <laughs> so I just like put out a call. And I was like, I, we're having a meetup on this date. I don't have a venue. I don't have a time. I don't have people. I don't have speakers. But we're, we're just going to meet up. And Rich is going to be there because I'm going to drag him there. And then like stuff got together because like you have a specific want, right? We were going to have a meetup before London. And like people just like helped out. Tierney chipped in with the Microsoft space and people mm. helped me promote and, and get speakers and stuff like that. And, and it, turned, it turned out really well. You can organize a 50-person meetup in one week. Just, just like that. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. And then we moved online, right? I think that was more building out this felt community because there's someone Discord and someone GitHub, but not really like people trying it out, talking about it, and then also putting it into toy apps at work and then eventually uh, production apps, right? Like if you want to grow a community, even code, you can write the most perfect code, but then if you have, don't see other people using it, you don't have a lot of confidence in this library or this framework. So you need some social proof. Things are going, things are alive in, in this thing. It's not just the side project of like one crazy Brit in, in, in the New York Times. <laughs> what was it like, the difference between you know, maintaining this meetup versus the first time? It's one thing to just be like, oh, let's just meet up, but I want to continually do this. Yeah. I mean, the excitement definitely dropped off. We, we probably went from like 50 to like 30, but it's still there, you know? And then it's the classic difficulties of getting speakers and doing logistics and stuff. I was definitely kind of like one person on that for, for a while. I do the same thing that we should do in, in GitHub. I delegate and people want to volunteer for stuff. I give them stuff to do, but they don't stick around. You know, they're not that super committed to it, right? So they'll commit for one thing and then they'll leave. I'm sure you, you know, I did that for Babel. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but that's life. And then you as a community manager, you kind of have to like stick through that. And I think what really kind of bailed me out was honestly this coronavirus. Because I was already thinking like this in-person thing is really a mess. Because I have to organize venue and then people and then do AV and then do talks because no one else speaking. So I have to be a speaker. It's a lot, right? It's super stressful. Yeah. I don't get to enjoy. I don't get to, to hang out with people and stuff like that. So I was already thinking of going online anyway. And then this coronavirus thing happened. So I was like, oh yeah, now we are online. <laughs> I got really lucky in that there are other people from Sweden and London who are as interested in building a community. It's weird. I'm not even like super passionate about this. I just want to see if I can do it. It's just like a interesting challenge. Can you like take this thing, which is almost there, and then just like give it that push to become huge? It would just be like a fun thing to do. Like I don't even necessarily need to see Svelte take over the world or anything. I, I just want to see how far can I push it to make it a thing. Because I saw it happen in Nilify where it used to be cheap. Uh, free static side generators and now people are like yeah i'm I'm the jamstack person right but uh, i i saw category creation at a company that was kind of fringe to the point where like i wasn't even sure about, about joining them because i was like how far mm. does this jamstack thing have to, have to go and now it's like people writing books and creating their careers and, and all that and that's amazing and that gives me a lot more confidence in like things can start small and with your help they can get huge and you just got to stick it out long enough and do all the, the dirty work of getting things in place that need to be in place. And that's kind of what we're doing now. We had a big conference, about 4,000 people attended, which is huge. I mean, it's easier online, which is fun. Then we need to keep going with a site and everything. It's just like this, you know what Cheng Lu from the old React team, mm-hmm. he calls it meta language around a language. The core thing is always a language, whatever it is, like Svelte, React, whatever. And then the meta language is like all the Docs, community, workshop, meetups, conferences, whatever. That needs to exist too, because that helps you get the most use out of the language. So I'm kind of building that. I, I've never spoken to Cheng Lu. I'm, I'm curious what he thinks about it now, because they definitely had that problem for a reason. 
Yeah, I guess there's a difference between what we say and how it plays out. I can say a lot of things about Bao, but it's it's still stuck the way it is. Yeah, sure, sure. Like he's super intellectual. He doesn't have to be the the doer. That's the interesting part of like how do we take the theory and play it? Like how does it actually happen in practice, and how do we live that out? Those things that we actually believe are true, right? It's hard, and I'm not the most qualified person to do it because I I have you know my own problems as well, you know. I have my own like insecurities and I need to, you know, fix my own situations and, and, all, and all that. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like you, you have to be a leader of people without being perfect yourself. Like you're not done with, you know, your own problems, but then you got to like assume the community's problems as your own and then deal with that as well. And then it takes a certain kind of, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you feel that all the time. <laughs> you know, it's funny when people are always asking me for advice, like, oh, how do I maintain this thing? There's a sense where I don't really know either. And maybe I, I've done it, but then I don't know how to word it. I don't even know how to express or, or it's hard to write down even, which sucks because people want the advice. Like you kind of have to get into it and just learn through the process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I I've, I actually came up with this analogy uh, when when I was writing the book. I don't know where I applied this, but I really like this analogy. Even though like I'm the I'm the worst person to to use it. You know how like when when people are parents for the first time, they have no idea how to be a parent. They have a baby. They come home from the hospital. They have a baby in their hands, and they're like, "Shit, this is real now." And you you figure it out. And guess what? Like hundreds of millions of people every year figure it out, and it's fine. <laughs> You can read a bunch of books. You do a lot of prep work beforehand, but then when you finally get to it, you're like, oh, that's what it's like. I'm sure even the prep is completely not reflective of like what it actually is like, you know? You know, like there's, there's all these like prenatal things and you like, read about it, and then, but then you like actually, you know, you wake up at 4 a.m. every day for like three years and <laughs> it's just really hard, you know? It's, it's this whole idea of like, you'll figure it out if you commit to the thing and, and you go like, this is my baby now. And it will die without me. And I can figure it out because other people figure it out. I just have to stick at it for a long time and uh, try to do my best every day, you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of faith, honestly, that you need. Not just in yourself, but just that things will work out, I guess. Otherwise, yeah, you, you kind of don't have any reason to continue. If, if you feel like you have to have 100% confidence, I guess it's the same thing with anything, honestly, like writing and hoping that people will like what you say. You just kind of have to go for it right yeah well there are things that you can do especially for writing in particular i finished the book like about two weeks ago and then now it's just like getting reviewed by people who volunteered and i'm glad that they're reviewing it before it goes out to like everybody Mm -hmm. right it's good to have a small group that you trust that will just give you real feedback because not everyone does right most people just want to see the finished products and then they'll, they'll, they'll judge you good or bad based on your finished product but your smaller group of like fans and friends and supporters and all that, they're fine with your unfinished thing and they'll tell you where you go wrong. So you really need those, that separation of like, hey, you guys are my in-group. You got to see like the early drafts and, and then you work on it. Because as much as, as I tell people to like learn in public, be raw and perfect the enemy of good, sometimes it really counts to get it right on the launch. Sometimes when it's meant for a general audience, you have to figure everything out before you hit them. So you need that like sort of review process. Um, that, I think that's good. Like there's writing, but then also just examples for our community with like View 3 and React Hooks. They weren't going to do that in public when they're trying to figure out how everything works. They did it after they had all the docs and planned through everything. I think a lot of people are like, why don't you do it in public? Isn't it open source? You know, that sort of sentiment. And it's like, no, they're doing this for the benefit because they don't even know 
what it is. It's hard because like we want to be inclusive and like you said, be in public, but then how do we balance that with things that feel like they're more experimental? We don't want to bother people with things that aren't actually going to happen. Again, it's a question of size. If it's just you, if it's just like 10, 20, 100 people, who cares, you know? But when you're hitting like hundreds of thousands, a million, the mass population are never going to contribute. They only want to see the finished product and they'll, they'll shit on you for, for showing something that is like not fully worked out anyway because they'll just pick holes and stuff. Like when I heard that View 3 was being developed in closed source or whatever, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Evan got so much shit for that. And I, I think like these, these people just haven't really been involved in a real nitty gritty open source thing. They just expect everything to be open. I don't know. Like, I I just no sympathy for that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very similar to TC39 proposals. When do you decide to use a feature when it's stage three? When is early too early? And, and people are going to complain about everything. JavaScript is moving too fast or it's moving too slow. It's hard to like have a handle over the communication over any of this stuff. Communication is, is important. Once you have a process for doing a thing, but then you also have to communicate it well. I guess that's like where I'm sort of specializing because that's kind of my day job. But, but I think a lot of people max themselves out doing the code design and, and docs and stuff. And then they don't think about the marketing. And there's actually a lot of marketing to do in tech. Yeah. yeah. So I was just thinking, we can add a bunch of features and then you write a blog post about it and then nobody knows about it. And then a few months later, you're just talking with someone like, oh, I didn't know that this was a thing. I could have used it a long time. Like the fact that it's been there for years, that doesn't matter. So two interesting anecdotes. One supports this idea. One refutes this idea. Okay. So the first supporting idea is this idea of CSS4. Do you know the CSS working group in the transition from 2.1 to 3? So there was CSS1, which was the original spec or whatever. Then CSS2 and 2.1, because 2 made some mistakes. And then CSS working group kind of like got together and said like, hey, having like these big specs is a lot of work. Like we should break out into smaller groups and then work on individual specifications for individual features. So grid was a separate feature. There's like CSS for voice. <laughs> There's CSS for more media queries and user preferences. And uh, they're all these like small little tiny groups. So they splintered from one big group to individual groups. And then they were like, we will all move at different paces. So this is uh, CSS grid level one. And then right. the, this other thing will have like headings styling level four. And we'll all just like proceed at different levels. So there actually is no CSS three. It's just a, this this marketing term that everyone got together and said, like, here's the, I don't even know what was in CSS3, but here's a nice logo and everyone can upgrade their sites to CSS3 now because it's also in line with HTML5 and JS. You, you know those like shield things like yeah. HTML, CSS, yeah. yes, with all the numbers, right? That was like a co coordinated thing just to get everyone to upgrade to, to modern tech. And it wasn't that modern either. And then, then the CSS working group was like, okay, we're done now. Now we expect you to, to keep watch on every single movement going on in each of our working groups. We'll just like release it in separate cadences, which like is great for them, right? There's this tendency of maintainers to optimize for themselves and then just like completely screw it on <laughs> just like <laughs> how the external image looks, which by the way is my problem in monorepos. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then it just became like, I know all these things are going on independently, but I can't keep track of them. So I'm just not going to use them ever. So they, they had this problem of exactly like you said, they, they had new features and nobody was using them because they don't know it's ready yet. So now... After like probably five years of denying that there was a CSS3, now they're saying, let's actually have a move back to, to market ourselves as 
having a CSS4, even though it's not actually going to exist. We're just going to lie to everybody and call it CSS4. And, and Jen Simmons is leading this charge. And two years ago, she was like making videos about how there is no CSS3. And so like there's been a huge 180 purely because of marketing reasons, just to get people to use CSS the way that is intended. They realized that, oh, we, we over-adjusted on how CSS is run, but not on how it's marketed. And <laughs> super interesting stuff. That's a tech marketing story that like I like telling now because it's, it's super cool. It's, it's CSS, man. So the other narrative that kind of goes against this. So it's like, okay, design things to make it easier for the general public to consume, right? Because... At the end of the day, that's what you're consuming them for. You're not consuming for the the kind of people that goes to CSS conferences and know the intricacies of each spec, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of people that, that you want to reach. I mean, the, sure, you want to reach them first, but if you want real impact, you have to reach for like the person on the street who has like five minutes out of every year to care about CSS. So then we get to Gregoric. Do you, do you know this guy? This, he wrote yeah. high-performance browser networking. I've never met him, but he like seems like a legend. Anyway, so there's this like, you know, adoption curve in the population. There's the head, there's the fat body, and then there's the tail, right? And the kind of people that go to conferences are the head. The kind of people that spend their free time arguing about progressive web apps on Twitter are the head. You know, we just talk to the head all the time, right? And then we have all these like fancy benchmarks and shit. No one cares in the body and the tail, right? So we can create all these like really awesome feature lists and stuff. No one cares. No one's going to use it until you simplify, right? Like make it easy for them to use it because they have other priorities that, that it's going on. Like we are in the body and the tail in other areas of our lives, right? Like, I don't know, finance and the climate and then like, I don't know. Yeah. So like, you know, we have to be humble and get out of our heads and just make it easy. And for him, it was like, okay, even a movement like CSS4 is not enough because that means that implies that people have to know about CSS4 and then you got to go reach out to them. What's even better, for, as far as he's, he's concerned, is to do it for them, right? His example was image optimization. You can do conferences about image optimization. Hey, run your thing, do this like SVG optimizer, and it's like 30% right. smaller, and everyone should do that. And then you just like do nonstop lectures, and, like build, build tools, and people still won't do it, right? They just won't. So it's kind of, it's very depressing, because like any learning curve is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so for him, it was like, this is build it into the platform. For him, it, uh, I mean, it happens to benefit him because he, he works on Android and Chrome. It's just like have native inputs that just optimize your image when you upload images. And it would just be optimized forever with no code because it's at the earliest point of entry. And he was like, we need to find things like that. That will really reach the, the body and the tail because they don't even know. They, they don't have to know. We've made it simple enough that we don't tackle on this universal tooling that, that all developers have to like learn and, and maintain and use because we don't fix the things at the source. Yeah. No, that makes sense. If you don't need that feature, it should just be a default. Like that's just how it works and doesn't even need to have a name or a concept. But then you have to figure out how to do that, I guess. And especially if it's like with the tooling, you have to make a breaking change. So yeah, it's hard to find that trade-off. Yeah. I don't know either. These are all like super new ideas to me. I just think they're fascinating because I'm always looking for like, what's the paradigm shift that will, that will just invalidate everything I'm using today? Mm. <laughs> no, that's true. We're always adding. I want to remove config, not add more, or at least make it so that the, what do they call it? Incidental complexity versus essential. Fred Brooks. I need to read that book. Oh, yeah. There's so many great books. So many books. What's, what's yeah. a great program? You know, you read way more books than anyone I know. What's a great programming book? 
and just like philosophy of programming or like history of programming. No, I, I think that was good. I mentioned this a long time ago, but programming as theory building was a good essay. It's not really a book. Yeah, that's fine. It kind of even goes back to what you were talking about, about almost life cycle of code, you know, like life and death, rebirth, if you want to use that metaphor of, of programs, just thinking about people and how they relate to code and the fact that it's about mental models and stuff like that. I haven't been reading too much about like philosophy of code in that sense, but that was the most that I've seen for that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think developers care? Do you think we're like married to incidental complexity? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, kind of, it's like we're, we're paid to do that right okay i'm glad they're shitty tools because then you need to hire people yeah. like me. <laughs> you keep the job i guess they're both true no one's like intentionally be like no oh, i'm gonna make a tool that's hard or anything that that would be weird but i, I think you kind of get used to how things are and how we see the things like our answer is the tool maybe another book would be uh, tools for conviviality uh, people mention that one a lot i've heard that one i need to go look into that yeah, he's really talking about like technology in general and the idea of tools. I get you would differentiate tools where someone designed something specifically for someone to do versus sort of like a hammer where it's a tool where you can almost create your own ways of using this thing that the person that made it didn't even think of, right? How do you create a tool? Sort of like the web, it's supposed to be right, like supposedly anyone should be able to make their own website. But then we create all this tooling so that you have to learn it and you have to go to school or you have to go to boot camp. In a sense, he's actually arguing against like professionalization of anything to that extreme or industrialization of things because that makes things very the same. Like everything is a product. Have you heard of dynamic land? Yeah, uh, that's Brett Victor's thing, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it seems too far off. There's that picture of a bunch of kids learning in school and they're all in a circle on the table and they're all looking at like a tablet or a laptop instead of they're all looking at the same shared space. Actually, I see this now with Zoom, right? Like we're all looking at windows of people's faces and then now seeing how people are trying to create more like spatial software is really cool. Almost like games. I've seen some demos being able to like move around in a space and that kind of gives people the freedom to do things differently like with google docs or figma or or even actual games like animal crossing and fortnite people are able to create something different because they have a platform for it versus you can't do anything other than like screen share and chat sounds like you want to go into vr (laughs) i think that barrier for that just having to buy that and being expensive you have to have another computer you have to like wear something. I think that seems a lot far off to me than just like at least starting off with something 2D. I don't know. Like one example I saw, if say you have like a stand-up or something and you want everyone to like talk about what they're doing in a Zoom call, like everyone's you know face is in a different place. You can't even have an order to it. But if if you're in a 2D space, you could make an actual circle and then you could just be like, oh, let's go counterclockwise or clockwise, just like in real life. I think mm. that presents a better way of knowing where people are sort of thing in this virtual space versus just abstractly everywhere, right? It's We kind of have that in Figma. I don't know if you play around with Figma, like this idea of cursors that represent people and people can kind of move around and communicate. We can even express like frustration with like our, our mouse movements, which is pretty cool. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I think it's fascinating seeing how people, you give them the, the freedom or just ability to kind of express themselves even with like a card game 
where they can hover over the cards and if you do it really fast you can tell how they act um actually this reminds me of the game i was playing a lot in person of the mind which i liked um I don't know if I even talked about that before. I wanted to write something about this, but it's a very simple board game. It's just the, the cards one through a hundred, and you need to play them in ascending order. It doesn't have to be one, two, three, but like one, ten, twenty, three. The catch is that you're not supposed to talk, so you can only use body language. And this is like an in-person game, and you're all in a circle. I actually played this at a lot of conferences. Just brought it in. It's very simple to learn. You just have to play the cards in order. But you don't know what other people's cards are, and you can't say, I have three. So you just have to have sort of like an internal clock. And the spirit of the game is you're not supposed to like count or anything or come up with signals, but use body language. If someone is leaning backward, you know that they're probably not going to go. If they're like kind of hovering over it, they probably want to go next. You kind of just have to go with your gut, right? Yeah, and, and you have to learn and adjust for people who are too timid and too aggressive. And... The game is interesting because it helps you empathize with others. And it's a cooperative game, right? We're all on the same team. Oh, this person went too fast. This person went too slow. It's hard to say they're both true, right? Like the person that was too fast has to learn to like account for other person that's going slow should learn to be faster. And then the fun thing is when someone else is around and like, hey, you should join in. And now that person changes the whole dynamic of how the timing works, right? Um, and you're only supposed to play with like four people max and at the conference. You know, there's like 12 people or something. Yeah. No, it's a good game. Um, you, you brought it to uh, React Rally and it was, it was a lot of fun. Psychic. <laughs> and it's funny because people are like, oh, that's some kind of cult thing. You, you put your hands in the middle and you say the mind, right? When we all put our hand in the middle, it's just to say that the timer starts now, but it's not like you're literally counting your head one, two, three. Two. I don't know. Like, how do we create that sort of thing online? I mean, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that we, we care a lot about jumping between physical and virtual presence. A game is a very small community. I think we always figure things out first in games and then we bring it out to the rest of um, society or, you know. That's interesting, yeah. I always think about how game tech is always so far ahead of everything else, right? But it's good because like, yeah, we, we pay for entertainment and entertainment eventually benefits us. So you, you can say like when you're playing your Xbox or your Switch, you're funding R&D. Uh, <laughs> basic science. <laughs> um, yeah, when you buy smartphones, we are funding research into making the smallest chips and most power efficient chips in the world, right? That's amazing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just the way people think about interactivity and design. One of the problems that we have with tech is like the idea of presence and immersion and participation. And I think involving the person more is, is a good thing instead of passive consumption, right? I think games help with that. I mean, a lot of times it's very trivial, right? You're just kind of clicking on things. But how do we make it so that something real is happening there? Going back to open source, it's like, I don't know. Emojis are good. I think I was actually reflecting that probably one of the best ways of expressing without plus one everywhere is emoji. People can express a lot of things with just like five or six, whatever they give us. I guess even pictures and memes, I guess that's why people like those. Yeah, says a lot. Instead of just like typing out something like good job <laughs> that was interesting yeah cool i mean i uh, appreciate you having me on we always have good chats and it, and it can ramble but uh, i think we all like are exploring these interesting ideas and they're all kind of related and we're just kind of mixing them up you know so yeah thanks for having me on yeah thanks sean <laughs>